Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. I'm glad you're tuning in on this Monday morning. I'm actually recording on Wednesday, but you'll be hearing this on Monday. I hope everyone's okay and uh, staying safe and healthy and smart uh, inside their homes. I uh, recently came to Connecticut just so we could, um, you know, get a little bit of fresh air, stretch our legs. New York was uh, becoming a little bit too crazy for us. Um, and uh, me and my wife both actually contracted um, the coronavirus about a month ago. So we had about two weeks where we were just um, out, you know, couldn't really do too much. Um, so we just stayed home for the most part and, uh, you know, worked on uh, getting better. It's, you know, it's a serious thing. Uh, people should take it seriously and um, try to go outside only when necessary uh, and interact with people only when necessary. Otherwise, you know, well, this thing could last for months or even a couple of years. So stay healthy, stay safe, everyone. And um, yeah, that's about it. So this week, I have Jeremy Wade on the show. Jeremy is an advisory board member, uh, Birla Institute of Management Technology, Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship Development. He's a mentor, uh, Singularity uh, University Venture Program, and just a social entrepreneur and all around pretty amazing guy. Uh, we talked about the uh, entrepreneurship scene in India. We talked about um, just doing good. How can you do more good as a business, as a human, um, with social impacts in the forefront? Um, yeah, I had a great time. At the end of the podcast, we did have a little bit of connection issues, as I'm seeing that myself and a bunch of other podcasters are uh, are having recently. I just think that the amount of people um, on their computers using the internet is just maybe a little bit more than what some internet providers are uh, able to to handle at this point. Um, especially when you're uh, talking to people from the other side of the world. Jeremy is currently in New Delhi where they're experiencing uh, not a full lockdown, but I guess a semi-lockdown where uh, you're only allowed out at a certain uh, time of the day. Um, so I guess without further ado, oh, one more important thing at the end of the document, at the end of the, <laughs> at the end of the podcast, we discuss where Carol Baskin's ex-husband is. And we do not provide answers because we have no idea, but you know, it's a fun uh, talking point. It seems like Tiger King has become a uh, cultural phenomena. And um, one one thing, in my opinion, is that I am, I think it was a, a missed opportunity. I think that they should have focused on the plight of the these these tigers that are just kept in horrendous conditions across the U.S. and all these backyard breeding facilities that are just awful. They're, they're really awful. And the fact that there's more tigers in backyards in the U.S. than in the wild is just shows you how far removed we are from, from, from what is really good um, for these wild animals. Um, you know, keeping them as a pet is not what's good for them. It's what's good for people who want to line their pockets um and running these quasi zoos zoos on i don't know it's not what's beneficial for these animals so that's my little rant on this and yeah without further ado uh here is jeremy wade and i hope you guys enjoy the podcast hey jeremy how you doing hey ryan doing good good to chat with you yeah, man. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, what, what's the time over in uh, in India? Yeah, it's around 6.30, 6.30 p.m. I just got back for a run. Oh, nice. So there's no problems with running outside or being, you know, outside for extended periods of time? 
Yeah, I mean, well, luckily I live right by a park, so it's just a step outside of my house. But India isn't a total lockdown right now, so yeah, not much movement. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you have to. We just came from New York to um, Connecticut, and it just feels so good to kind of just stretch your legs and be able to go outside and and you know not interact with too many people. So in that sense, it's uh. Yeah, you know, in New York, it's a smaller apartment. So when you're there for two, three, four, five, six, who knows how many more weeks, uh, it starts to get a little claustrophobic after a while. Yeah, absolutely. I getting out for a run, I, I, uh, it's uh, necessary. <laughs> so it's been it's been nice 100%. to be able to do that. I, I I read somewhere that a guy completed a marathon inside his house uh, like last week or something. <laughs> No way. How'd that work? Yeah. I don't know. I guess he just ran in circles for X amount of hours until he like completed the, the, the 42 K. But yeah, people are, uh, you know, people are getting very creative and, uh, I feel like that's the, that's the plus side you're seeing, you know, with, with this viral internet culture that everyone wants to go viral with their video. There's just people are getting so creative with their type of challenges and their workouts and their, I don't know. It's, it's funny. Yeah, absolutely. So what um what's the situation like in, in India? How's the how's the atmosphere? Yeah, it's there's still a lot of uncertainty about it. It seems that India is on the maybe the earlier side of this. Yeah. I think they they locked down travel from China fairly early on and you know, the number of cases have have been low, but if you look at the you know the the curve of new cases, it seems to be on that exponential graph that everyone seems to be on just at a lower end of it so it's you know it's fortunate that they took strong measures i think to lock down and keep everyone home because if it were to spread here you'd, you'd have a real crisis yeah. And, and and people are compliant there. They're following the guidelines that the government uh, put forth. Yeah, it seems it seems so for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the difference between you know east and west. I've noticed is the, you know eastern cultures of this part of the world, Asian cultures, more more socially you know compliant, more you know yeah less individualistic. And I think that's one, you know one challenge. I think Americans are facing is don't really like to be told they can't do something i think that yeah is a challenge yeah yeah there's um there's a real set especially i mean especially from a certain sector that you know the government won't tell me what to do and uh, you know individual freedoms and uh, i want government out of my business so you know tyranny and, and all that all that jazz so there's definitely a sense that i should be able to do what i want and if i but, you know, if I'll die from Corona, that's my prerogative, but they kind of miss out the fact that, uh, okay, maybe that's your you know, prerogative, but you still could be uh, infecting a lot of other people on the way. So that's why you need to stay indoors and, you know, not just do whatever you want. Yeah, definitely. And it seems like a lot of countries on this side of the world are, are, are maybe able to, are being able to flatten the curve too, as a result of yeah. know, being a bit more compliant. Yeah. Yeah, I saw a crazy um, stat where it said that New York has more confirmed cases than uh, South America, Africa, Asia, if you take, if you exclude uh, China, and Oceania. So that's insane. that's pretty insane. Just this one, you know, state, and, and probably the majority of that is in one city, New York City. So we, we've de we've definitely been hit hard in uh, in New York City, but I mean New York City is just it was almost not meant to be, but it's just it's got all the right ingredients for that to happen mm -hmm. in a city like New York City. Right. What is your sense about the rest of the country and the cases? I mean, there's yeah, it seems like you know a few states. I think it was. Um, Louisiana, uh, Georgia, maybe Mississippi, a few kind of states in the South, 
uh, east of the United States that supposedly are starting to get hit really hard. Um, I guess we'll see in about a week or two. Uh, unfortunately, you know, if they do get hit pretty hard, I, I, I don't know if they have the same uh, tools and, and uh, backing like uh, like New York, New York right now has. So I guess um, I guess we'll see. You know, hopefully other states will come to because right now it's it's super weird. I don't know how it works elsewhere, but here in the states, you have states that are bidding for different like things like masks or ventilators, things that are in dire need. They're kind of bidding from private uh, corporations, and the corporation basically, all right, you know, the state that gives me the more the best bid, that's what I'm going to sell it to, instead of it being dispersed. You know. Or maybe not equally, but as according to to to, to the needs of the states by the government. So, uh, you know, I, I I don't get it, but I guess that's that's how the system is. Yeah, I think in India, you know, the industry is a lot closer, you know, with the government, and uh, you know, free market capitalism hasn't hasn't taken off. India didn't open up until 1991 to a kind of a more free, freer market. So I think. These kind of things, the government still plays a pretty powerful role in uh, how how this how to get out the yeah, and it's important equipment and stuff. It seems to be working. Um, all right, so yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about you know who you are, what you do in India, what's um, what's a social entrepreneur, and you know how it's how it's how is the scene for social entrepreneurs right now in India? Sure. So I'm originally from a small town in in Oklahoma in the US and I started my career at a actually at another crazy time which was uh, the last economic crisis uh, in 2008 uh, banking crisis and I started my career actually with a position at the US Treasury Department so I joined in June of 2008. So if you remember, the banking crisis really started in September 2008 and then really escalated over the next year. So it was an absolute crazy time to have your first job is joining the U.S. Treasury Department. And specifically, my role was working with um, small community banks all over the country. Um, But I was (laughs) just, just starting. So I was literally fresh out of college and just thrown into a banking crisis and traveling around the country. It just threw you in the deep waters. Yeah. But it ended up being really defining kind of moment for my career because what, what I saw was just had the role of capitalism and its impact on communities. So Another layer of, uh, to this is I was positioned, my position was in San Francisco. So, and this was, you know, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. I left in 2012. So at the same time I was doing this job, I was seeing incredible entrepreneurship, incredible innovation in the Bay Area. And my job was to go to a small community bank, which was trying to recover, um, you know, in the aftermath of the financial crisis. It was such a stark contrast between, you know, the the innovation, the entrepreneurship, the possibility, and local communities who were just struggling. You know, and I had I could relate actually. You know, small town Oklahoma definitely is a place that was struggling economically. Mm-hmm. You know, in the year I was born, nineteen eighty five, the Good Rich Tire Factory which was really the main employer in that town, small town, town of eight, 10,000 people. Uh, it uh, closed up. So, you know, really that town to, to this day hasn't seen any kind of really economic recovery. And anyone who grows up there look, leaves for economic reasons. So, and this is all over the country. And this is what, you know, this is kind of this, uh, this stark missing contrast is, I think, what, uh, you know, ended up really shaping what I'm doing now, which, you know, uh, in social entrepreneurship. So, you know, the idea was, you know, the capitalism and 
our financial system, it doesn't have to be the way that it is. There's other models, there's other ways to you know, think about enterprise and, and innovation. So the concept is, can we, and the big idea is, can we use the same tools, the same creative thinking to solve social and environmental problems? You know, a good business uh, solves a good, solves a problem, you know, and it is rewarded with uh, profits and that's clearly measurable and you know the growth and the survival of that enterprise is based on you know its continued ability to get profits and to, to stay alive and that's how our financial so, system works but yeah, yeah go ahead no so yeah i was, I was just saying because essentially there's so many of these small towns across the united states right that have one factory and and for the most part the, the the majority of the town is dependent on that one factory right doesn't matter what industry oil or tires or plastics whatever and a lot of times and we've seen this throughout the last who knows how many years every time that industry goes bust or that factory goes bust that whole town is just you know ruined basically there's just no jobs and is there a way, and we kind of see that a little bit now with, with China, right? That China's become the main factory of the world. And when China closed down, everyone was just, wait, what are we doing? How are we going to get our goods? How, we, you know, we need textile, we need this, we need that. And nobody was able to get anything. And um, is there a way to create a different, um, a different paradigm, a different structure, a different way of doing business where it's not all dependent on one big boy running the town or running the world. Yeah. It's, it's, this, and ultimately it's the system and how the system, the incentives of the system work and, you know, capitalism is in a, has been in a crazy, uh, incredible, you know, driver of, you know, great wealth and great prosperity for the world. There's no doubt about that. Um, however, when it goes to an extreme and almost I think that's where we might be at and particularly in the, you know, the U S system where it goes to the extreme and is we're almost working too good. It completely ignores, you know, the social, the community, the environment, you know, everything gets captured by, you know, measurement of financial profits and, Everything else is secondary, and I think to the to the extreme where it's just completely um, irrelevant if something is destroying a community or destroying the environment. And I think that's kind of where we're where we've gotten. So, I mean, the idea is that the, it, you know the traditional thinking is that the government, you know, and uh, civil society come in with regulations and you know with activism to balance the capitalist system from going too far, you know, or philanthropy comes up and, you know, helps a small community, you know, have, you know, services for those that are disadvantaged. But the reality is it's not keeping pace and, you know, the, the in income inequality has just continued to grow and we just don't have good incentives for people who want to do those kind of, uh, you know, activities to, you know, solve social problems, build community, you know, work on the environment. There's just not many great incentives for doing that. So I think uh, to me, the way forward is, um, you know, bringing this kind of human centered um, kind of measurement into the conversation. And um, it's a difficult one. It's going to, it takes, it's probably going to take political action. It's going to take just individuals, um, you know, making that change themselves at a small level and the ripple effects of it. But I think a crisis like we're in right now may be a moment that really we all sit and have to rethink. And, and you know, maybe this is actually a moment where some of these ideas can, can, um, can actually make a move into our mainstream thinking. So let me, let me take it back a little bit. Sure. Why? Why move to India? I feel like 
you almost did the the, the opposite of what of what the rest of the of, of people in your field would do right a lot of people usually want to move from you know developing nations and and move to europe or move to us and you kind of went no let me let me try something different let me move away from silicon valley and grow you know go where something you know go to a place that maybe i can make a real change was that kind of your thought process partly it the main driver was a realization that growing up in a small town in the US you know in the 90s in the US i had very little exposure to the world and mm-hmm. i think one of the main drivers was to get some exposure and when i first decided to make this move i had the idea that i may just do it for a, you know a few years and then um you know make a move back but what i realized i think in making the move and and kind of watching the way the world was shifting and is that um you know there's some big trends at play and the one of those big trends is the move of just power and you know whether you know economic power in particular as the asian countries grow and develop and and these countries that used to have you know vast majority of population you know in poverty or extremely low incomes that's no longer the case where they're becoming economic powerhouses and it's a it's a it's a slow big trend but if you're thinking about you know your career and if you're at your early stage of your career so one thing i realized is that you know, this may you know i may stay a bit longer because this seems to be um you know worth worth doing um for for a number of reasons and another big reason of course is my interest in the social impact space and india in particular is considered to be a, a real hotbed of opportunity and kind of innovating in this way because of the scope and the scale of the, the social and environmental challenges and the kind of openness to new you know experimentation and entrepreneurship uh yeah. so combination of reasons but yeah it's now i've been here going almost eight years which is hard to wow believe. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've been here seven years in the u.s and uh yeah it's a little bit of a mind fuck sometimes when you when you look back um but yeah it's it's a great experience how how hard was it that transition from san francisco to india was was <laughs> Delhi the first place you landed or did you or initially were you living somewhere else? Yeah, just outside of Delhi. Uh at a so I at a university there, which had a university campus, but it's kind of in a semi-rural area. It was quite okay. and I had never been to India before. That was another thing about it. But, so I mean you couldn't have more of a stark so, contrast, you know, from yeah. I, I had a I mean I had a one bedroom apartment, you know, in one of the nicest you know, neighborhoods in San Francisco. And then I moved to, you know, kind of a semi-rural, you know, kind of place that still had some challenges with power at the time. You know, I think when I first moved into the flat (laughs) on the first day, within two or three minutes, the power just cut and it was pretty hot. (laughs) I came came in July actually. And it it was in the (laughs) power cut. And it was extremely hot, so everything went off, even the fan, like everything just pit like completely you know without power for like a minute or two, and I was like, "What have I done? <laughs> <laughs> Did you just have that like really like i i'm fuck I'm packing my shit i'm 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 out of here. this isn't for me. What did I do <laughs> yeah it's a i I had really resolved myself this that that this was a good kind of uh experience i i i, I had yeah. a good mindset going in otherwise i think i would have packed up after that moment but um yeah it just was a you know a continually um process of adapting and to you know such a different culture too and such a different um 
you know, place than I was uh, used to. So, yeah, quite an experience. Uh, no, that's very unique. Around. I think, I don't think 99.9% uh, .9 of uh, people living in Silicon or uh, San Francisco or New York or any other major hub uh, in America would say, you know what, let me just go and live in this rural part of India where the electricity is uh, selective and, um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, water is an issue. And, you know, let me just try and, and figure out my life uh, in this part of the world. What, what, was, what would you say was the hardest thing that, you know, you had to adapt to? Yeah, the hardest thing was, I think, just getting um kind of the, the those things that seemed like unquestionable before i came i think the biggest one was probably the internet just getting a reliable internet connection and how difficult that was um you know coming from san francisco too right so i think yeah yeah i think and you know definitely like the missing kind of friends and and family connections um that was that was definitely a challenging too. Those, and I think on the on the pro side though, it was it was such a stimulating experience. Like India is a is an incredibly interesting place, but India, you know, at that time and 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 the last few years has just gone on this crazy transformation of itself adopting the internet. And I mean, when I was there. A very small percentage of, I think, the country had the internet, maybe less than 15% or 10 or something like that. And mm -hmm. now it's it's grown, you know, exponentially over years and it's maybe nearing 50% or and growing fast. So just well, massive transformations in the country is a crazy time to be there and, and experience it, um, to say the least. Would you say it's a... Uh... It's an advantage or a disadvantage being a foreigner like yourself in India, uh, in the sector that you're in. Yeah, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a, a, a privilege to it. Um, I think just being, you know, uh, you know, a Western American coming in, you're you're definitely, you know, viewed as someone, you know, that's you know, someone to listen to or someone to, so I, that, that's an advantage. The disadvantage and, yeah. and, and just that you're still an outsider, I think, you know, and you're, um, you know, it's harder to, to, to build that trust and, you know, um, over time. But I, I will say, I also spent, you know, a few months working in, uh, in Beijing. And I will say that comparing India and China, in China, I really felt like an outsider, extremely more than I did than I do in India. India is much more embracing, I think, to, to to you know people from different countries and different cultures. Then, uh, so that's one thing that uh, wasn't too bad. Is it also a language thing? Like probably in India, for the most part, they, they speak English, and maybe China not so much. Or is it yeah, just a cultural a thing? Like Indians are a little bit more. Um, warm I, I would say maybe maybe a little bit of both yeah it, the language is key though and yeah in india english is spoken yeah you know in business and, and in the university that i'm at and um, mm -hmm. you know most people that i'm interacting with are speaking english uh, but yeah in china yeah used to, i was i mean at, in the job i was at i was speaking in english everybody was speaking in english but it was it's 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 less common i think and when they yeah. were speaking internally they were speaking not speaking english yes yeah, so you, you mentioned the university can you tell us a little bit you run a uh, lab that's focused on sustainable economic growth right yeah that's right so it's a, it's a really unique lab we call it a social innovation lab or social impact center and okay it's an interesting model it's it's a combination of an incubator for entrepreneurs, um, a combination research lab and a research focus. And, you know, it also does uh, training and creates online courses. 
So it's the goal is to be a bit of a hub for these new ideas like social entrepreneurship, social innovation, and you know, encourage people to you know experiment with the ideas. They can come get kind of best practices in you know how other entrepreneurs are blending you know a for-profit business with a social and environmental goal you know mm-hmm. who, who's doing this well what can i how, how what kind of models are there to do this and you know we also help develop new courses and um you know for people that want to teach these topics or do, or do these uh, kind of trainings on these topics so you guys allocate you have you know uh, a cohort or whatever and you allocate x amount of capital that you're going to invest in uh, X amount of startups each, you know, each year. So we, we don't have a, um, we don't give financial capital, but we, our incubator, our incubator has been very unique and it's, it's been very targeted for one specific community primarily. And that community is uh, Tibetans living in India and Tibetan entrepreneurs. It's a very unique program. And, the Tibetans have an interesting history in India. Uh, so they've, you could consider them like a refugee community, but it's very long-term. They've been there for 60, 70 years. So their status wow. is not, you know, not a citizen, you know, they're, you know, they're not officially recognized as a refugee by the international law, but they are given kind of, know, refuge and given economic rights. But the reality is they've struggled to integrate and unemployment rates in um, those communities are, are kind of high. So this program was targeted at supporting, you know, a small group of four to six entrepreneurs each year from around the country. So the, the settlements that they're located, they uh, are different parts of the country. There's 39 different ones. So this brought in four to six entrepreneurs each each year, and we've done it for five years. And um, we they come to the campus and they spend in five weeks uh, there doing doing uh, our kind of entrepreneurship training program that we we've, we've kind of created. And um, then they then they you know are out in the market and um, they are given some funding right after they complete this program from the uh, Tibetan central administration, which acts a bit like a, a government in exile. So that's a unique program uh, that, that we've, we've done. So that's our only structured cohorts. We um, it's just, just one group. Okay. So they're, they're kind of like in, in, in limbo type of situation. They're on the one hand, even you're saying second, third generation they're not um recognized as citizens by the the government but also not recognized as refugees by i guess the the international community so they're kind of stuck in between and that's 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 interesting why why aren't they recognized as citizens though they have a choice so they can decide to give up their tibetan identity um oh i see and, and and their their status as a tibetan and just become an indian citizen so this is something that some uh, Tibetans would do, but because India doesn't allow dual citizenship, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. All right. That, yeah, I could see that they have such a. I mean, I don't know if it's a problem, but you know, population. Um, I don't know. Uh, do they do they see it as a problem? Is that something that you know they're actively trying to to reduce, or they, or you know, is that not something that's spoken about, or is that something they're even maybe even trying to expand on and and have more people? Yeah. So I think it's it's not a huge issue. The community isn't is isn't too large in comparison to the population. It's a couple hundred thousand. Uh, I think maybe one hundred fifty thousand total, and. They, you know, I think the there's such a rich hist cultural you know history with the Tibetans with Tibetan Buddhism, and um, I think there's yeah a lot of reasons why they wouldn't want to give up that you know identity to preserve that culture. For another reason, that culture within China, within Tibet and China, is not really. This is what I hear from the Tibetan entrepreneurs is is not 
the Tibetan culture that they, you know, want to want to hold. It's a lot of it's watered down as in their words over time because of Chinese policy. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's another big factor here, and it's comp. This is complicated. These are these are big international relations issues between India and between China. You know, I think that they're kind of right in the middle of it, unfortunately. And these communities of people, you know, have to, you know, kind of get whipped around by yep. the bigger forces. Yeah. Yeah, this is happening with a lot of smaller countries that you know China has some sort of a uh, a holdover. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's not easy for them. And I'm sure it's not easy for a lot of these smaller countries that either want independence or are trying to get under, get uh, you know, out from under the reins of of the Chinese uh, administration. Um, Joe, you were recently on on um on a panel, and I actually I, I watched the video. Uh, it was nice to see um, between on, the, on um, India and U.S. relations. And uh, that, it was broadcast, I think, on one of the largest uh, networks in, in India, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't really yeah, know the, right. how it is yeah. over there. So, how, how was that experience? Yeah, it was good. It was, you know, it was a panel of about ten different, you know, mostly American professors and faculty members who are are at the university that I'm at, who have, you know, come to India. Like I, like I have. So I'm not the only crazy person. There's a few others, it turns out. That, <laughs> <laughs> um, but us all just talking about kind of the, the relationship between India and the U.S. and in the context of Trump visiting, you know, about a month ago. Seems like forever yeah. ago, but yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And, 27 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, you know, the India-U.S. relation, and we were just talking about China, the India-U.S. relationship is an important one. So it's an extremely important one. And I think, you know, whether it's because of similar values and democrat democratic values, um, you know, India is the largest democracy in the world. And, you know, or it's, you know, the incredibly strong, you know, presence of Indian Americans you know, in the U.S., leading some of our biggest, you know, technology companies and, you know, all over the country. And, um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's a, one of those relationships that I think will just get stronger with time, too. I can imagine that India, U.S. will just continue to grow. Relations will continue to grow um, over time. So we were talking about some of these, these trends. Do you see a scenario where more uh, Americans would come uh, to live and study and work in India, such as yourself? I do. I definitely do. Actually, I think there's. It's you know definitely more than now, which is so few. But I think there is there is, you know, now with our current, you know, global situation, I think I think a lot of lot fewer people will be probably taking bigger risks and living in other countries maybe for, for some time. But once, you know, we get back to a new normal, maybe in a few years, hopefully. Yeah. I do think that these kind of trends, I think, I think a big trend too, it will be Indian Americans um, or those that maybe have went to, to the U S to study and are staying for a few years. I think them coming to India too is a, is a powerful trend um, as well. So I think they'll be a, do you, do you see a situation where um, India, I don't, I don't want to say completely uh, replaces China, but somewhat, you know, t- maybe takes over some of the factory capacities that, that it has right now and, and starts exporting more goods to, to the U.S. and um, in Europe? Because I think now a lot of people realize, like, we can't have one country producing everything for the rest of the world. I think you might start seeing other countries and, and maybe India as, as one of them. I think that's why partly the, the reason that Trump maybe visited India was to see if, hey, we can have other countries supply the goods that we need. Yeah, it's a big opportunity for, for India. And, you know, I think manufacturing, possibly to some Degree, but I think maybe the bigger opportunity for India is in, you know, the future 
economy and you know with you know with digital economy with you know artificial intelligence um you know internet of things and i think you know india is a fairly technology savvy country and mm -hmm. you know i think that's where i think there's a lot of opportunity to for india to kind of step up on the global stage it is in this space and there's no doubt about india's as a growing economy it's just it's just almost a matter of uh, just a force of numbers in the demographics of the country with such a huge amount of the population being so young that they're going to and just have started to experience something called a demographic dividend economic theory about when your workforce percentage of your workforce is so young so large it just naturally means economic growth for the country and you know india's got looking at looking at this for you know 10 or 15 years of just likely large economic growth something that you know maybe like what we saw in china for the last 10 or 15 years and you know, it's a big opportunity at the same time it's also there's some challenges that for india to realize that you know with education and, and making sure that you know the infrastructure is you know such that young people can get the jobs, you know, to make the economy do well. But I think it's, yeah, it's definitely a lot of, I think, I'm very bullish on India's future. I think, um, I think they'll be, can, can continue to be a bigger factor in the global conversation. So recently you tweeted out a, um, I don't remember if you, you might've sent this to me or you tweeted it out. Uh, Mike Maple's podcast, uh, which I, I listened to after you recommended it. And there was a line there that said, a startup is a group of founders with proprietary insights resulting from them living in the future. What did you, uh, I love that line, but I was just interested. What did you like about that line or what did you take from that line? Yeah, I, I, I also, I, the first time I had heard him speak and, um, yeah, I was incredibly impressed with his insights about entrepreneurship, about startups. And I think he could, I think he couldn't be more right about, particularly when we're talking about, you know, high tech kind of, you know, entrepreneurship and startups that are really literally building the future. Um, I think that definition is, is, is spot on. And, you know, I think, you know, another insight I really liked from what he was talking about is just the importance of the, you know, founder, you know, creating a movement around those insights, those ideas, whenever no one else, you know, maybe thinks that it makes sense or, or can't see it. And that's, I think, where the real genius lies and the real opportunity, you know, the real, um, yeah, magic is, if you will, that turns something into, you know, a real startup that, you know, a real company that scales and grows. I think that's just, yeah, brilliant. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I love the podcast as well. I, uh, after you tweeted out, I, I listened to the whole thing and I've never heard of, of him either, but, uh, he was, you know, there's a few guys or, or girls that um, when you listen to, you're like, all right, these, you know, these people know know what they're talking about. Just kind of like Naval, uh, Ravikant, and, and and Mike, and uh, a few others. So it's uh, it's nice when you find these people once in a while that, that really resonate, um, and that you really feel like, all right, the, these people know what they're talking about, and they're uh, verbalizing it it in the in the best possible way. Um, so let's, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about Corona. Cause, uh, I mean, there's just no, uh, there's no escaping this. It's the biggest thing that's happened to humanity in the last hundred years, probably, or at least since, uh, world war two, um, wh who, you know, if, if, if we're looking at, obviously there's going to be millions and millions and millions of, of, of jobs that, that are going to be lost, um, industries that might have to shut down. But, you know, if, if we had to kind of try to 
get a silver lining or try to see all right, who, what industries might gain from this or who is going to, uh, who's going to be a winner at the end of this with businesses that are still going to thrive, survive and thrive. Who would you, you know, put your money on as, uh, as business as who would you put your money on as far as these businesses will survive? I, th- I think certainly those businesses that, you know, moving to online, moving to remote work is not, you know, a, res- a response. They're having to, to do it in an emergency. You know, those, those companies that have been operating maybe in a distributed model for, for a while. And it's becoming more and more of a trend, definitely within the tech industry, where, you know, they're all the employees or vast majority of the employees, you know, work from home throughout the year. And I think these companies will, you know, certainly not see even an interruption and they may grow in, you know, in these situations. So that's definitely, um, you know, one example, I think companies that are lean and, you know, can, can, recognize and i think startups in general this may be a good time for startups because if you you can survive and have you know a runway of funding but you can be nimble and you can recognize the shifts and changes and you know capture new opportunities but it's going to be a tough time i think i'm yeah i think it will be i think we're just at the beginning of this i think this is going to be a tough time i think for for some time in the economy and yeah what um do you think vcs are just going to start throwing massive amounts of capital on health and and tech bio you know health tech biotech industry is that one of the is that going to be one of the leading ones probably yeah i think there definitely will be i think there are you're seeing some of that i think those that are solving this this health crisis, I think, are going to uh, be uh, you know, urgent, you know, need for everyone to get behind. So I think you know there will be some of that for sure. Yeah, I think the yeah I think it'll be tough to get funding, but I think if you're if you're solving a problem and you're you know working on something that you know solves a problem, like I said, I think that you know, the funding will still be there. I think I don't think it'll dry up completely in the VC space. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of similar to what um, maybe Mike was saying, how there's the amount of people recently that have told me, Hey, let's, uh, let's get into the, into the mask business. Like everyone's starting to, to do a, a mask business and uh, we can do it branded and we can do this and we can do the other. And I mean, that's great. There's definitely, I see masks being uh, an accessory, just like gloves and hats. That's definitely part of, of the future. And uh, I don't see that going away in Asia. It's been, that way apparently for for a much longer time and i think now it's it's caught on in the west so i think that's going to be a staple but that's almost i don't want to say easy but yeah that's 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 for granted like when you see something Mm -hmm. that everyone else is doing right now and you want (laughs) to hop on that's you know i think it's risky because i think big brands are going to take that and and run with it you know they're going to do nike uh and 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 gucci and whatever the brand is and they're all going to do their branded masks and One's going to be a little bit better than the other, and maybe they're going to be reusable, whatever it is. But you want to look at, all right, where, what are people not seeing right now? And what could be the future in this space? Like, what is something that could really help us solve this issue or other issues? And what what are people not seeing right now? And what's going to be needed or popular in two to three years? And that's where you really want to invest your time, not in something that everyone is already realizing that, yeah, that we need this, but what is going to be needed in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. You know, one space that I'm a a bit more focused on um, is in in kind of the online learning space, which is a a space that I think is also massive, massive, massive and going to continue to do well. and. Yeah, I think there's probably an opportunity for all brands to just 
you know, to get a bit into, I think this has been a, a longer term trend, but it's kind of really, I think, uh, making, it's becoming obvious now is, you know, educating your, your consumer, your customer, or growing your customer, you know, base through, through kind of learning, you know, and like qual- high, you know, qu- good quality learning, um, that is engaging and interesting, I think is, is a, is a, is an opportunity. And I think everyone's trying to, you know, particularly if, if with struggle with jobs and if people are losing their jobs need to maybe shift their to, you know, the tech industry or to understand remote opportunities. I think there's a lot of people looking to learn and to upskill. And I think these, um, yeah, this is a booming, booming area for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at Zoom right now, right, they basically cornered that whole market. They experienced a 700% growth uh, in the last two months, which, you know, if, if you look at their Google trends, you just see it just, it's just straight up. It's, it's 90 degrees, just straight up in the last two months. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. And, but they do have their own problems. It's not, you know, I'm not going to list out what, what I think are, are the, their issues, but I do see people complaining and you know i don't think that one company can control the whole web conferencing uh space do you see a, a situation where they start to you know companies start to branch out and offer more specific uh you know video platforms that will perhaps focus on fitness or homeschooling or uh, cooking shows or like you said uh, um yeah i mentioned homeschooling <laughs> but yeah just different industries instead of having it all be on one platform yeah i, I can see you know different you know industries different uh use cases where they bring web conferencing in as a feature you know instead of us all having to go to zoom you know yeah actually i could see that yeah like this whatever that software is um, that you're using to do, you know, fitness or you're doing using to, to do, you know, online learning. There's, you know, could be, you know, that could be a new feature of that, of that platform instead of, instead of having to, to go to zoom. I think that's inevitable um, feature. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, um, because I think, I think retail and office spaces and just generally maybe industries that relied on a group of people all converging in one place. Um, not that it's dead, not that it's not going to still be there. I just think you're going to see less and less of it. Both for the reason, the obvious ones where I think people are going to have an, a genuine fear of, of just congregating in, in large numbers. Uh, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, and, but also on the flip side, I think business owners are going to look at it and be like, okay, wait, I can potentially have the same amount of revenue and half the expenses. I can have my uh, people stay at home, work remote, and I don't have to pay for office space and for all the amenities and the electricity, et cetera, et cetera. So I definitely, you know, I see a, I see a, a shift that I think is going to come. This is, this is almost like an experiment, right? Like every, all these different industries are saying, all right, let's see if we can actually do this. And I think some are definitely going to be able to, you know, I think, um, I mean, I think in your opinion, what industries do you think are going to have to, do a shift or a change in, in their revenue model. We, we spoke, uh, you know, privately a couple of days ago and, and we were saying that sports, uh, might, might have to change. Yeah. You see other industries that might have to do that. Yeah. Sports is the one that, that again comes to my mind. Uh, how I'm trying to imagine what I mean, they're going like to have to write two years. Yeah. They'll have I, to, right? I, I would, yeah. I was reading just that, uh, I think the MLB, you know, the baseball, professional baseball league in the U S they are trying to figure out what to do about playing, you know, with no actually having the players move away from their families and stay kind of in a quarantine place for, for months and then playing with no fans, you know, just, I don't even really? know if the players want to do that. Like that doesn't even sound, you know, so I think there's some real challenges and 
I think we're we're going to figure them out the next few months, and you know where. Yeah, yeah. You just have to, well, the, have to rethink. The UFC, um, the guy who runs the UFC, basically Dana White, he basically said that he rented out an island somewhere. It's, um, no one knows where, and he's basically going to have all the international uh, fights happen on this island for the next, I think he said, two to three months. So, I mean, he can do that because the UFC are, are nimble, but I definitely don't see like, you know, the NBA or the NFL or, or I don't know, all these other large, large uh, industries being able to be as flexible as he is, which is kind of crazy. Just, you know, he's going to take all these fighters to an island and just have them uh, <laughs> have them do a Hunger Games-esque type of uh Reality show. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. So a couple of last questions, uh, Jeremy. So I don't know if you saw yesterday, but um, Jack Dorsey tweeted out that he's dedicating more than, you know, more than a quarter of his wealth with a new fund for charitable causes, specifically for, you know, for COVID. Um, do you think this might inspire other entrepreneurs to kind of go in that philanthropy route? Yeah, I think it, you know, it was an incredible announcement. Yeah. And uh, particularly in terms of his, uh, you know, commitment to being transparent. I love that he he just shared the Google Doc uh, spreadsheet. Yeah. Which yeah. is which is going to show you what he's what he's doing, which is I think uh, an incredible incredible piece to it. I think that's true of uh, you know more and more of you know tech entrepreneurs who you know, are thinking about, you know, philanthropy and, you know, giving back is there, they have this transparency piece to it. And, and yeah, I think it's a, an exciting trend. Um, I think we, we, we will see more of it. And I think what's interesting is I think the way that they give and the way that they think about it is going to be unique and different. And I think it's going to be global too. I think there's, there's a, you know, a more of a global approach to I think a lot of the tech communities thinking, you know, their products are global. So I think they have this global consciousness more than traditional philanthropists, uh, maybe. And yeah, this transparency and also this idea of doing things that um, have a measurable impact, which I think goes back to the kind of work that I'm focused on, where you know you can measure, and I think using technology in particular, you can start really doing incredible measurement of progress on social and environmental goals. It's hard. It's hard work, but I think there's progress there. And I think the tech community and those that, that give are going to have this sense of mind. And, you know, there's going to be more concentration on that. And I think that's great because I think you're going to, you know, if you're going to solve these problems, you have to have some kind of, you know, measurements of your progress. Otherwise, you know, you're just, you're just, uh, you're not really solving it, right? You're just yeah. making yourself feel better or, you know, as, as, or you're, you know, trying to, you know, be generous, but you're, you, you may not really be actually making a measurable difference to that, to the problem. But if you start measuring it and we start, you know, putting resources in this way that are effectively spent, I think that's a great potential of actually addressing these yeah, I think that um, there is, I think businesses are much different nowadays, especially uh, tech startups, where if you're not doing good or doing good is not part of the, the ethos of the company, whereas before, it just mattered that you could make money. It just mattered that you spent X, but you brought in 2X. And nowadays, it's a little bit more are you a do good business? How are you improving lives? How are you improving the environment? How are you helping people? And I think, you know, I, I, I've talked to a lot of investors over the last couple of years and, and that's something that they always circle back to like how, you know, how are you improving something? What are you, what good are you bringing? And it's like you said, like measurable, how is this measurable? So I do hope that he, that we stay on this path and that he leads, uh, you know, by example, he obviously does lead by example and that other people, yeah. you know, that are big names in the industry start, uh, following suit. 
Um, yeah, one of the one of the things that he mentioned in his, in his tweets about it is that he's one of the pieces to it is UBI, which is something yeah. I'm really interested in, and I think really relevant to what's happening right now. I think. I think. Are you uh, for UBI? I, I certainly am. I think. I think, unfortunately, we just, um, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, we don't value, you know, certain, like, for example, someone who's staying at home with kids and taking care of the kids that has no economic value attached to it. So if someone wants to work at a nonprofit in in a a local community that's been devastated, you know, and... uh, they can't, they can hardly earn the wage, you know, local teachers don't get paid enough. So I, I mean, on top of that's a long-term issue that's always been the case, but I think, you know, the, with the automation and the speed of, you know, uh, our move into robotics and animation, I think people aren't going to be able to keep up and they're not going to be able to retool fast enough. And we're going to have a, a kind of this gap in time probably we're already experiencing it i think and it's just uh, i think it's going to continue and i think to keep the economy going we're going to need to to look at this as a serious policy measure i know that it's you know a lot of people have reservations about what it means for incentives but i think i just my general think i think people you know, i don't think it's going to change their behavior so much i think but uh, yeah, yeah it's, it needs to be tested. It needs to be tested, uh, but I think it's, you know. That's some of the counter arguments that I've heard where, you know, they're, they're saying people will just stay home, people won't work, the uh, economy will collapse. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, uh, I definitely think there's positives and negatives. Uh, I just, I'm not 100% sold on it, but, you know, I think in this time, it would definitely, in, in times like these, it would definitely be a good idea where half the world's on lockdown and the only essential businesses are pretty much operating right now. Um, so mm-hmm. right now it would definitely be a good idea, but I don't know. I guess I w- we would have, this would, this also might be a good pilot to try it out and then see how it works. Yeah, I think so. I think it's and I, it, different countries, I think have different contexts and it, you know, may make more sense in some places rather than others. But yeah, I definitely think that's something worth experimenting with. And I, I think you're right. I think this could be a, um, I don't think the U.S. is at, at this stance thinking about it, but I can see that. There's, there's um, Republicans and Democrats um, talking about it in this potential response that we just had this bill. Yeah. So um, I think we could, we could end up seeing it if we have a version two uh, response which we i think we probably will need in a few months maybe if, if this doesn't turn around um in a positive way so jeremy i have one last question for you and this might be the most important question out of all the questions all right <laughs> so I, I need a serious answer where is carol baskin's ex-husband I uh, I I can't I want to ask you to that question because <laughs> <laughs> if you're not con- convinced that there's something something at play there, um, I think it's a quite a mystery. I don't think he's the kind of guy that just disappears off the face of the planet. Um, he's in the Keys. He's in the Florida Keys. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? I, I can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> they need. They almost need like because I feel like there's in like the guy the guy that made the documentary he originally sold most of the people that were involved in this documentary or at least some of them on the fact that this is going to be the blackfish for uh for tigers right for all these poor tigers that are just held in 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 horrible conditions across the u.s and instead he made this kind of salacious documentary that you know about joe exotic about all these colorful characters but the takeaway has been carol baskin everyone's talking about Carol Baskin and where her husband is. And I feel like almost that needs, needs like a spinoff, like a spinoff documentary where like four or five episodes, all they do is just interview the people that were involved and try to find 
where this poor <laughs> where this poor guy's either been you know i don't know either fed to the tigers or in the florida keys yeah. or in costa rica or who knows there's too many question marks around carol and her husband too many too many unanswered questions that i think you're right that spinoff might uh, make sense to to dig into some of that yeah so if you're if you're the director of uh tiger king and you're listening we need the spinoff let's 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 do a spinoff oh i did hear they're coming back with one more episode i did i heard that too yeah so i don't know (laughs) it's i was we were i think we were talking about this the other day how ironic it is that joe exotic the, the only thing he wanted in life was to be famous and now that he's super famous he's behind bars and he probably has no idea that he's like a meme that's circulating worldwide on everyone's phone I, I have a feeling if he does know, he's he's scheming. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's gonna try to try to figure out something. Oh uh, yeah, he's probably he's gonna host a YouTube show. He's already got a whole host of businesses lined up. He's gonna have an app. He's gonna he's yeah. <laughs> uh, that guy's a maniac. Uh, all right, man. Well, I won't take up too much more of your time. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. I had a you know a blast. It's good to to learn about you know how things are done over uh on the other side of the world or in india and in other countries as well um yeah so thanks for coming where uh where can people find you on uh on social media yeah a good place i think is twitter uh j wade jeremy instagram same yeah same j wade jeremy yeah and uh all right cool so yeah man thanks again and yeah, uh thanks. Maybe we'll do this in the future again. Sounds good. All right, man. Take care. Stay safe.